0: Macrocast, the sound of the economic world, with Gilles Moek, AXA Group Chief Economist. Bad news on the pandemic front, specifically in the US, sparked some turmoil in the markets last week. However, the contamination of the equity market to the credit market was limited. Full details of this episode are available in the Macrocast newsletter. The link is in the podcast description. Today, we will focus on the growth of the money supply it may ultimately look more like a one-off level shift than as a permanent acceleration. And we remain convinced this crisis is more deflationary than inflationary. It's Monday, June the 15th, I'm Gilles Moëk, and you're listening to Mercocast. If anything, the market gyrations of last week remind us that monetary policy cannot drop its guard. Still, we are witnessing some growing concerns over the impact the ongoing acceleration in money creation could ultimately have on price stability. It is a minority view so far, with no effect on policymaking, but it could gain in strength as data starts improving. A short paper by Charles Goodhart in Vox makes the point in a nuanced and very effective way. In his view, while for now the growth in money supply is offset by a collapse in the velocity of money, which neutralizes the inflationary impact, at some point velocity will normalize, bringing on risks of an inflationary backlash. Goodhart continues by debunking the usual counter-argument, according to which, once we're there, monetary policy will also normalise and central banks will be able to lean against the wind. It took, in the past, unusual political accommodations, for instance in 1980 in the US, to successfully roll back inflation once it had set in. Charles Goodhart, who is both an academic and a former policymaker, is one of the elder statesmen of monetary economics. His views matter and they need to be carefully considered. In the euro area, the broad money aggregate M3 rose by 8.3% year-on-year in April, accelerating sharply from pre-pandemic 5.5% in February. This is by far the highest growth rate since the great financial crisis of 2008-2009. The explanation behind this acceleration is very straightforward. Credit origination has been very brisk since the beginning of the pandemic crisis, as we have already documented in Microcast, with record flows of lending to corporations in March and April. Credit to the private sector contributed 4.8 points to the year-on-year growth rate in M3 in April, while 2.3 points came from lending to the government. Indeed, just like credit institutions create money by granting loans to businesses or households, they also do so when purchasing government bonds. The latter has nothing to do with quantitative easing, at least not directly. It's the normal way of things. When banks are faced with uncertainty... They tend to rebalance their portfolio towards government debt, seen as a risk-free asset. What QE adds is to introduce a structural, not-profit-seeking buyer of risk-free assets in the system, which reduces the investable quantum and drives interest rates down. The central bank does not buy bonds from businesses or households, but from institutional investors. Those investors' cash holdings rise with the proceeds of QE, but they tend to recycle them quickly in other non-monetary assets. Specific feature of the current configuration is that there is no sign of any crowding-out effect. Banks managed to both increase the lending to governments and to the private sector. This is made possible by the ECB's action, in particular the new very generous TLTROs, but also, and maybe mainly, by the government's decisions to pledge their own balance sheet by guaranteeing the emergency loans originated during the pandemic. In a nutshell, they have abolished... difference in riskiness between investing in government bonds and lending to businesses. Not fully though, since in most cases the guarantee is lower than 100%, but you get my drift. A second specific feature is that the newly created money is not spent, at least not in net terms. So far, the fiscal stimulus funded by newly issued government debt is a mere and only partial substitute to business spending, which is not happening now. The best example of this are the temporary unemployment benefits through which the state pays wages instead of employers. At the same time, businesses tend to hold liquidity and are drawing on their credit lines beyond their immediate needs to create buffers. Finally, households have been reduced into false saving during the lockdown. It's something we've already talked about in Macrocast. This means that money supply is currently growing much faster than the number of transactions in the economy proxied by nominal GDP. This is the very definition Of a decline in the velocity of money, that is the number of times the same unit of money is used. In our estimate for Q2, we took the ECB's forecast for GDP growth for the current quarter, which is minus 13%, and prolonged the April growth rate for N3 to May and June. Money velocity would fall by 22% year on year. The problem Goodhart focused on is the exit strategy. At some point, the velocity of money will normalize as the economy exits lockdown. Then the full impact of the jump in money supply would show an inflationary pressure. While in theory we recognize this as a risk, in the present circumstances we're not as concerned as is. Indeed, in our view, it is likely that the normalization in money velocity would coincide with a slowdown in net credit origination. In the immediate pre-Great Recession days, the ECB was getting increasingly worried by the acceleration in M3, and its growth rate stood in two-digit territory from December 2006 to May 2008. It was one of the reasons why the central bank maintained a tightening policy stance in mid-2008, despite the growing evidence the world economy had already fallen into recession. But the nature of the acceleration in money supply was very different from the one we are witnessing right now. Then, the financial machine was in complete overdrive, with loans, in particular mortgages, being originated on the basis of unsustainable expectations on income and house prices. Nothing could be more different today. Businesses are taking loans to offset the collapse in their cash flows, not because they expect strong conditions ahead. The biggest risk to the recovery, in our view, is not so much that credit overheats as we exit from lockdown but rather that credit decelerates once the exit from lockdown is confirmed and businesses can rely again on at least a significant fraction of their cash flows. Note as well that in the EU area, most of these emergency loans have been granted with a fairly short maturity, typically between two and four years. Credit creates money. Paying back credit destroys money. Paying back short-term credit destroys money quickly. This will hold back net credit origination in the years ahead. In addition, while businesses have been keen to leverage themselves these past two months, the opposite is true for households. They have paid back more than they have taken new loans in March and April. We would be surprised if households were to reverse course upon exiting from lockdown. With their employment prospects dimming, appetite for mortgages and consumer credit is likely to be subdued. What will remain as a source of strong money creation then? Well, extending credit to governments is a natural candidate and we would expect a continuation at least into 2021 of a robust contribution from this counterpart to the growth in M3. But again, governments are substituting themselves to private spending at the moment, but it is unlikely to be a full substitution. All in all, we would not be surprised to see money supply return to a more set growth rate, possibly to the very low growth rates seen after the Great Recession of 2008-2009. We would end up with a one-off level shift in M3 without lasting consequences for inflationary pressure, even by the time the velocity of money normalizes. It is of course possible that in the long term, central banks fall asleep at the wheel and, still shell-shocked by the brutality of the pandemic crisis, fail to recognize times have changed and monetary conditions need to tighten. But for now, and probably for several years, the deflation risk is much more manifest in our view. As you know, I'm really fond of the 1970s, and I've found for you uh, this interesting clip by Milton Friedman, uh, recorded there in 1979. Now, the first step to our understanding the cause of inflation is to recognize that it is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. It's always and everywhere a result of too much money. The notion that, in the long run, inflation is a monetary phenomenon has been drilled down in your humble servant's brain during 12 years at Banque de France. But what is often ignored by the popular version of monetarism is that the monetary policy mistakes Milton Friedman explored in his seminal book, A Monetary History of the United States, are all episodes of excessive tightening by the Federal Reserve, triggering deflationary risks. Friedman's ideas on the role of monetary policy and the control of money supply became mainstream in the 1970s when inflation had become rampant. But even though we took the brutal policy tightening of 1980 to regain price stability, it is not obvious that the prime cause of inflation in the previous decade was accommodative monetary policy. Central banks allowed inflation to get out of control. But what was at the root of the acceleration in consumer prices was the institutional setup at the time, in particular rigid wage price indexation the current institutional setup is very different. Labour markets have been liberalised across advanced economies. The rigid rules, which in the 1970s allowed mass unemployment to coexist with excess inflation, have disappeared. With more job losses ahead of us, it is unclear to us how a proper inflationary spiral could settle in. Moreover, beyond the labour market, the levels of competition in services and product markets was markedly lower in the 1970s than today. International integration was a fraction of what it is today and monopolistic behavior on national markets was rife. Of course, institutional setups do change over time and it is tempting to see in the pandemic crisis a watershed moment at which the pendulum would swing back and the liberalization consensus of the 1980s and 1990s would give way to a re-regulation of our economies. We certainly see this as a plausible scenario, but it is not a foregone conclusion. People across the world have rediscovered that fully functional governments are a key asset in tough times to deal with the immediate sanitary aspects of the crisis, but also to provide the ultimate backstop to avoid a complete economic meltdown. Governments everywhere are providing traditional stimulus measures, for instance, a good old VAT rate cut, coupled with cash handouts to families, as per the new batch agreed by the German coalition we discussed in Macrocast last week. But again, a key aspect of the ongoing public sector response is the pledge of its balance sheet through loan guarantees, and in some cases, equity stakes, to shore up the private sector. In most cases, the potential liabilities incurred by the governments through this financial channel exceed by far the ordinary discretionary packages, even if these financial commitments are of a contingent nature, whereas the ordinary measures will immediately impact public debt. This is not exactly new in the sense that, at the worst of the 2008-2009 Great Recession, governments had to intervene directly to save the banks there was a price to pay for this state bailout. Regulation on banks was significantly tightened, which had a negative impact on their profitability. Could this pattern repeat for the entirety of the corporate sector this time? Well, in principle, no. Re-regulating banks was essential to ensure democratic support for the bailouts at the time, since it was the very behavior of the financial sector which was directly responsible for the 2008 recession. This time, the business sector, including financial firms, are clearly the victim of an exogenous shock. Yet, the direct involvement of governments as guarantor, direct lender, or equity investor may trigger some thorny dilemmas for political authorities, with potential lasting impacts on potential growth and inflation in the long run. Indeed, while in the aftermath of the great financial crisis, the government's goal was to re regulate to avoid a new crisis in the future, this time, A willingness to protect firms deemed strategic during the slump could rigidify our economies by lowering competition intensity. In Europe, these risks are likely to be kept in check by the European Commission, enforcing the single market rules, but conflicts will arise. On April 3rd and then on May 8th, the European Commission announced a relaxation of its state aid rules to help deal with the pandemic crisis, after having already endorsed 1.9 trillion euros' worth of support to the business sector by member states. But crucially, it also sets several red lines. For instance, to guarantee the temporary nature of additional government involvement in firms' capital, which is in principle limited to six years, the remuneration owed to the state by the firms would rise over time to incentivize them to buy back the equity stake. Also, firms benefiting from the state's entry in its capital are prevented from acquiring more than a 10% stake in their competitors. This would ensure that national champions cannot take advantage of government support to further increase the market power. Finally, member states could not use the aid to support economic activities of integrated companies that were in economic difficulties prior to the end of 2019, although this may be quite difficult to establish objectively. The recent case of Lufthansa may provide some interesting early lessons. The German government is lending to the company while also taking a silent participation of which the majority will be treated as equity, on top of the more traditional equity stake of 20%, rising to 25% in case of hostile takeover. The financial structure itself is compliant with the European Commission's rulebook. For instance, the dividend on the silent participation would become gradually punitive, from 4.5% in 2020 to 9.5% by 2027. But a thorny issue arose with the Commission's request for Lufthansa to release some landing slots from Munich and Frankfurt airports to offset state aid to a national champion with a higher degree of competition. After an initial rejection by the board of Lufthansa, an agreement was finally found on the release of 24 slots in each of the airports. However, for the first 18 months, these slots will be open only to new competitors, that is, firms that do not yet operate in these two hubs which will make it difficult for the two leading low-cost companies, EasyJet and Ryanair's, to bid. Some comments from German politicians at the time of the negotiations were quite interesting. The Prime Minister of Bavaria, for instance, expressed concerns that low-cost operators would offer less secure jobs. This encapsulates the difficulties in which governments may find themselves after expanding their direct role in strategic corporations. With the equity stakes comes political responsibility in the eyes of the electorate it will be difficult to act as an ordinary shareholder and tempting to offer a high level of protection to the detriment of competition within the single market. For the time being, there is no evidence of widespread re-regulation and this would not affect our firm belief that for the foreseeable horizon, this crisis is deflationary and not inflationary. But we think policy discussions will increasingly focus on the regulation topics once we work our way through what could be a quite bumpy recovery. (music) This week's focus. Well, since the market turmoil last week was essentially driven by bad news on, on the pandemic front, it's likely that we will all spend our time uh, we're looking hard at any data on whether or not the pandemic continues to, to accelerate. So, this will probably be the, the dominant uh, source of, of noise uh, this week. Uh, but from an economic point of view, um, I would probably focus on the Bank of England meeting um, on Thursday. Uh, They're expected to deliver an increase in QE of about 100 billion pounds. And we'll also have a conversation between Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen. Uh, It's something that may have uh, slipped a little bit uh, from the radar, but Brexit remains a big issue. And we are heading to a very, very hard form of Brexit at the end of the year, if nothing changes course very, very quickly. So uh, definitely stay tuned uh, on Radio London this week. As the weeks go by and we confirm what we've already shared here, the road to lasting recovery will be winding and bumpy. Nevertheless, I would be very happy to accompany you there starting next Monday. In the meantime, have an excellent week. Macrocast, the sound of the economic world. Available every Monday on your podcast app.